2: Hello, I'm Denny Somak, and this is The Rock Podcast. Now, as a producer, rock historian, and best-selling author, I've collected thousands of interviews over the years and try and bring you the greatest stories as told by the artists themselves. On this episode, I have a rare conversation with Roger Waters. Roger's been uh, out on the road with his This Is Not a Drill tour, which began on July 7th in Pittsburgh. He's playing in the round, and he is including Pink Floyd classics, as well as material from his solo albums. The set includes Another Brick in the Wall, Have a Cigar, Wish You Were Here, Shine On You Crazy Diamond, Money, and Comfortably Numb. Now, Roger is a founding member of Pink Floyd and left the band after the legendary album The Wall and subsequent live performances of that record. Interviews with Roger Waters are pretty rare, and this interview, that you're about to hear was recorded by my London correspondent around the time that his first solo album, The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking, came out in 1984. That record includes guests like Eric Clapton, David Sanborn, Michael Kamen, Andy Newmark, and Raphael Ravenscroft, who's best known for playing the saxophone on Jerry Rafferty's song, Baker Street, remember that? Anyway, you'll hear Roger tell the story about how he presented the concept for the record and played demos of the pros and cons of hitchhiking as well as The Wall to his bandmates in the Floyd and asked them to decide which should be the next Pink Floyd album and which should be his solo album. Of course, we know that they decided they preferred the concept of The Wall. This is Waters' first solo album and involves several dream sequences. It deals with his struggle, with his marriage, fidelity, commitment, And basically, it's about a man in a midlife crisis. So here's a conversation with Roger Waters from my classic rock archives.
3: Well, the idea for the album came concurrently with the idea for the Wall. the bones of the idea. Um, I, I wrote both pieces at roughly the same time. And in fact, I made demo tapes of them both and in fact presented both demo tapes to the rest of the Floyd and, and said, look, I'm going to do one of these as a solo project and, and we'll do one as a band album, and you can choose. So this was the one that was left over. I mean, it, it's developed an awful lot since then. What's it about? It's really about sex.
4: What do you mean it's about sex?
3: Well, it's about relationships between men and women, um... Partic- um, seen specifically in this album as between this man and his wife, and seen within the context of um, f- forty-two minutes of one night when they're in bed together,
4: and the man is dreaming, dipping in and out of of the dream, and also um, his wife lying next to him as he breaks. Back into consciousness, and and talks about the dream that he has. Where where does the hitchhiking element come out? Come come into it though. Is it part of the dream, or is it part of the real side of his life, the conscious side of his his uh, waking hours?
3: Well, I've used hitchhiking really as a as a convenient metaphor for um, relationships between men and women. I the idea of if you look upon the idea of life being a journey and of picking people up and travelling together and dropping somebody off and who owns the car and who's getting the ride or whether things are mutual and it, it's it's a convenient allegory within which to frame uh, ideas about that
4: on the subject of hitchhiking now there was a very very funny science fiction comedy series called called the hitchhiker Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Douglas Adams wrote it when he was at college lying in a field in Vienna on a hitchhiking trip and he, got, he conceived the whole idea lying in the field one day with no money in his pocket and um, forced to hitchhike all over Europe now that was the idea he got for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy did you in a similar sort of way get the same ideas from a real life experience something that that you saw or experienced
3: I did an awful lot of hitchhiking when I was younger uh and I think maybe this uh, this album and show came originally out of um, a memory of a dream that I'd had that was about travelling in a car somewhere in Europe. And although the specific detail of the dream really has nothing to do with that, it was, a, it, it was about um, a sense of unease in a foreign land, um, it was a strange wasteland in this dream that I had, and in a way, the 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 album is about, on a surface level, it's about two things that happen to you, when you're asleep and or when you're just waking up. One about two moments, two two opposite moments that that happen to people. And one is a moment of of panic that you get a anxiety attack at four o'clock in the morning and you suddenly bolt up right with the sweat pouring off you. Th- in, in a complete panic thinking, which we've all experienced, I think, probably waking from nightmares, or just, you know, the demons take you over at that time of the, of the night. Um, and the converse of that, which most people I've spoken to have experienced as well, is that, again, in, a, in the moment of waking, in the darkness, when you suddenly feel that you've got the answer, not a specific answer, but you suddenly feel as if you understand something that you hadn't grasped before. And you may not be able to eat, put your finger on what that is either, but there's a real feeling that, got it, you know. And you, sometimes it's about something specific in your waking conscious life. And I've even, on odd occasions, reached out and taken a you know, pencil and paper and, and written down what it was. And of course, you wake up in the morning and it's gibberish, you know. <laughs> you think, what the hell was all that about? But nevertheless, the moment... It's very powerful. Th- they are both... Um, those are the moments when we, when we are all in contact with our own subconsciouses, it seems to me. You know, it's that those moments of waking from dreams when you make contact with your inner self.
4: Uh, but for a very brief period, for I mean, it depends fleeting, how quickly yeah, you wake up, doesn't it? Yeah, fleeting period.
3: Uh, that's what a lot of, you know, a lot of painting and things has been about people trying to express those moments.
4: Those moments, in a way, are, one could say, are very surreal moments. They're not really part of either world, the unconscious or the conscious world. They're not something that we live with in our daily lives. When we wake up from a dream, it very quickly... Disappears from our consciousness and it becomes a memory, and, and you only remember the most obvious aspects of it. You don't remember. Now that's something that the the, the Pink Floyd have always excelled in, and that is expressing themselves in a, in a surreal way through their music. Um, perhaps yourself more particularly than any other member of the group, as you've been the main songwriter. Now with the wall, you wrote about a man's isolation and the way he saw the world, and in a way, a very depressing look at the world as well. I mean, the images that you, you painted in the wall and uh, subsequently in the movie Uh, in a similar way you're saying the same about the pros and cons of hitchhiking one man's view of dreams and reality the way in which those two work together is that a a continual uh, theme do you think that's the way that you you see your writing in in music today uh yeah probably
3: i think unless you train as a writer, you know if you I had no idea that I would ever write anything. When I, when I you know, bought my first guitar aged 15 and decided I was going to be a rock star along with umpteen million other kids, uh, I had no idea really that I would ever write songs. And in the early years I didn't have to because Sid was writing all the material and it was only after he stopped writing that the rest of us had to start trying to do it and i'd always been told at school anyway that i was absolutely bloody hopeless at everything you know so i had no real confidence about any of it so i've i've come to writing songs um without almost without noticing it happening to me and so the craft that i've developed over the years um has happened in a very um you know has developed in an, in an organic way. what i'm trying to say i think is that <laughs> i don't i i haven't yet developed um the techniques maybe that are necessary for looking at a situation outside myself and writing about that i have to my my writing depends entirely upon feelings which come from inside me and and therefore um the songs tend to be written um in the first person or 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 very much about me and how I feel about things um, rather than about outside people and
4: events. Back to the, the production, The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking. Now, um, not only is it an album, which has just come out, but uh, also you're taking it onto the stage. You're performing some major concerts in Britain and as well in the United States, Going back to the wall, a similar project where you took it uh, to concert halls and it was both a visual as well as musical presentation and then on to a film. What's, what's the pros and cons of hitchhiking going to be like? Is it going to be an extension of the wall as, it, as, is it, as the music is or is it going to be entirely different?
3: Uh, it's similar in the sense that um, we're putting together a, f- a big production to fill, this, fill those large halls. I mean to d- describe very briefly what what the um, what the pros and cons show is going to be like. What we are attempting to do is to turn the whole of the stage um, by using back projection screens and flats that fly in, wh- which are designed to cre- wi- with f- designed with false perspective to create sort of Trump l'oeil, you know, to create the illusion of three dimension on the stage. Uh, And the hope is to create the illusion that you're actually in the room with the characters um, to whom the story is happening. Uh, And then by flying the flats out, um, we lose the room and come back to it later on. And we're using screens that come down from the ceiling and uh, three synced 35mm projectors. Um souped up, in fact. So they can take 4.5k on lamps so that the thing's bright. It's very complex, and, and, and so for the pros and cons, the, the band will be playing to click tracks most of the time so that we stay
4: perfectly in sync with all the visual material that we've prepared. So it's going to be quite a, a visual presentation as well as the sound. Now, I know that uh, on the record you've been using this fa- fabulous sound technique called holophonics, which uh, was brought about by the scientist Hugo Zuccarelli, and you used some of it on The Wall, and again on The Final Cut, I believe, and more of Holophonics on this new album.
3: Yeah, there was nothing on The Wall, in fact, Uh, and there are some sound effects on Final Cut. On this album, I had the... You you know, basically, it's recordings made in a dummy head, using a dummy head, that is physiologically an exact copy of a human head. Um, But there's more to it than that, Zuccarelli um, believes that we perceive direction or position in sound through emitting a signal ourselves. And it's the way our brain interprets the interference patterns created between incoming high-frequency information and this outgoing tone that allows us to uh, isolate exactly where the sound is coming from. And he certainly, there must be something to his theory, because if you listen to the demonstration tapes of his, his thing, you know, you can hear up-and-down movement got from high-frequency things like snapping fingers well we, we used it throughout the recording so for instance if we were recording a piano we would have conventional p- miking of the of the piano but also there'd be this head leaning over the side of the piano peering into it and we would mix that sound in in with the conventional miking, um, and it gives it a strange you can't put your finger on what exactly what it is which is why it's quite good for this stuff about dreams it's It does give the sound of instruments, as well as sound effects and things, a strange presence that um, you don't get using conventional micing techniques.
4: Now you mentioned, uh, back to the stage performance, the back projection and the, the various props that come in to the stage throughout the dream, if you like, throughout the bedroom scene where the man and woman sleep through the night and go through the, he goes through the experiences. Uh, in past productions you've also used things like uh, miniature Spitfire
3: yeah.
4: fighters and uh, and the elephant from, from animals etc. From various uh, parts of your career, the Pink Floyd's career, at least you did with the wall anyway. Are yeah. you going to use the same sort of uh, props in the audience and, and get them involved? Um, it was a pig, not an elephant. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not doing very well this morning. <laughs> it's alright. No, when I, when I started,
3: I've start. I'm um, finding myself drifting in the direction of producing inflatables and things for this show as well. I very sharply <laughs> slap myself on the wrist and retreat. I am trying in this show to um, keep the thing simpler, to use the money, because all this, as you can imagine, costs a bloody fortune, uh, to use it in a simpler way. I want, it, I want it all to be more graphic, you know, stark less round, if you like, than it has been. I'm using quadraphonic sound in order to involve everybody, but, but um, there, there won't be anything flying out into the audience.
4: Difficult to make something sound simple when you do something on it, on such a grand scale. For example, you're not going into small theatres, you're going into the biggest arenas you can find because you'll need that sort of space to put all the equipment in. Is it something you like doing, though, in, in retrospect? Do you like doing things on the grand scale, or would you like, uh, at some point or other, in your writing recording career to actually go back to smaller concert halls and just play ordinary rock and roll music.
3: No, I wouldn't want to do that. I I do want to get back to smaller spaces, but not to go in with a band and play an ordinary rock and roll concert. What I, In fact, it, at one point, I was toying with the idea of trying to make the pros and cons into a theatre piece. And I was thinking about how I could put it into a theatre, how I could, if you like, turn it into a musical play. Um, and i I started writing drafts, you know as well I was writing dialogue and all kinds of stuff in fact one one idea that I had was um, that it was turned into a um, uh, a two act play with a long first act that set set up a second act, which was this. so the first act would be setting up the characters and setting up the situation that created um, the atmosphere within which this man could have this dream. I sort of I started writing a rambling piece about a dinner party and sort of lots of aggravation, and all the characters from the dinner party would reappear later as people in the dream. And d- so I do, I do have um, I'm sure I will do something like that. Maybe the next thing, I don't know. But then uh, when I then I was making the record, and Eric got involved.
4: That's Eric Clapton. Yeah.
3: When we were getting towards the end of um, you know, the guitar overdubs, anyway, he, he started saying... Well, you're taking this out on the road, aren't you? And I was going, "Well, no, I hadn't thought of it." And he said, "Oh, well, you got to," you know. And he started really sounding, poor. and then, of course, I, I started feeling tinglings of excitement and thinking, "Wow, you know, maybe one last time get out there and uh, because the band is
4: great." Great band. Let's talk about the band in a minute. Now, do you see yourself as a pioneer in, in the world of theatre and music? Because there aren't many people from the pop world that have actually done the sorts of things that Roger Waters has done in, in terms of The Wall and in terms of all the Pink Floyd productions, really. They've all been these multimedia events. There have been composers like Andrew Lloyd Webber who's cu- who've come from the other direction, from, a, say, the tradition of theatre yeah. rather than music, and written things like Starlight Express recently. Yeah. But yourself, you've come from that tradition of pop music into theatre. Yeah. Not many people have done that.
3: No. What was the question? <laughs> I just wondered how you, you know, felt think, yeah. about
4: being a pioneer. Do you, do you feel that you're pioneering some particular art form?
3: I've, yeah, I, I feel I've pioneered something. I'm not quite sure what it is or where it's going to end up. Or, um, but yeah, definitely. Because when you know when I, you start coming up with ideas for doing things like this, of course the immediate reaction always is it's going to cut into the profit margins. You know, Ooh, I don't know if we want to do you know. And there have been some ludicrous things that I've done in the past that were well that the Floyd did in the past that were it was a real battle to get them done because they were going to slice a hundred and fifty thousand dollars off the bottom line. Like um, a classic one was in. Uh, in the states i think in 75 when we was started doing outdoor gigs so we had to have a roof so i said oh, <laughs> what would be good why don't we build an enormous pyramid right um the top of which is a um, it's not a tetrahedron that's a three-sided figure whatever anyway a pyramid you know a four-sided pyramid and we could fill it with helium and at the end of the show we could let it go, <laughs> and this was sixty foot. The base of this thing was sixty feet. It was a sixty foot square pyramid, and um, uh, there was a lot of trouble getting that past the rest of the lads. I didn't, but we, uh finally, Nicky was always a great ally. Nick Mason was always a great ally in all these things. He liked the idea of it, and um, and finally we did it, and uh, and and one night it actually worked. It was it was unbelievable. Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh, and suddenly this thing went whoosh. It was on a cable, you know, to, so that we could try and get it back again. Then it turned upside down, and the balloon that was inside it shot off into outer space, and the rest of it fell to earth in the crowd and was ripped into a million pieces, and they all took a bit home.
4: Uh, you mentioned Eric Clapton is, is alongside you, playing guitar and, and helping you uh, in live performance, as well as on the recording, of course. Who else is actually playing with you in the pros and cons of hitchhiking? Which other musicians do you have?
3: Well, Andy Newmark uh, is the drummer.
4: You know, the, some of these
3: people, people say, and who's Andy Newmark? But if any, anybody who's in the music business you know, knows who he is, because they remember his work going all the way back, beyond Sly Stone and a lot of work later with John Lennon. So there's him. He is wonderful. Um, who else? Michael Kamen, who did all the arrangements for uh, The Wall and for the final cut. is playing piano.
4: And, and he also helps produce this project. Sure.
3: Yeah, he's co-producing it with me. Well, he co-produced the record. Chris Stainton, who came via Eric, because Andy Bowne did the work on the Hammond organ stuff on the record, and he's out with status quo, so... I needed somebody else and Eric suggested Chris who is again is f- fantastic. Mel Collins is playing saxophone. Um, Doreen and Chanter and Katie Kassoon who just sung on the album are uh, doing the background vocals. Tim Rennick is playing um, some rhythm guitar and some lead guitar he plays as well. He and Eric share solos and he is incredible as well.
4: And, of course, they're the actors, the people that are actually playing out the parts on stage.
3: No, no actors. They... they any v- extra voices stay on tape. So there'll be voices out in the auditorium coming from the quad. So um, the voices of Beth Porter and Cherry Vanilla and Jack Palance and those people who are on the record will all be on tape.
4: How do you feel about embarking on this project? Although um, it was in, say, parallel to The Wall as a solo project... Uh, could be a Pink Floyd project and the war was accepted as you said earlier uh, as a project uh, to be encompassed by the Pink Floyd and this has become a Roger Waters solo project how do you feel about actually going on stage with uh, people who aren't from the original band at all, and musicians that may have played with you as backing musicians in, on Pink Floyd tours but aren't actually, they are the mainstays of, of, the, of the orchestra if you like now, how do you feel about that?
3: Wonderful <laughs> None of these people ever played with Pink Floyd. Except Michael, played piano on Final Cut, but nobody else has had anything to do with Pink Floyd. Um, it's great. It's a, it's a revelation to me. You know, I've never played with other musicians, really, apart from, as you say, um, using session people on Floyd albums. It's terrific fun.
4: Uh, and is this the sort of mark of uh, of you breaking from the Pink Floyd entirely now? Are you literally embarking on your own solo career now, and never to return to the Pink Floyd or the other members of that band?
3: One hesitates to be too definite about these things. I saw, I read last week that um, Deep Purple had just got back together again. So, if, if Deep Purple can get back together again, anything can happen at any time, anywhere in the universe.
4: How do you feel about um, David Gilmour's solo project and Rick Wright going off to form Z with Dave Harris? How do you feel about that? Uh, because you were together as a, a unit for a very long time. Yeah, well, Rick left
3: the band in 1980, I think, so that's four years ago. Um, I, you know, good luck to him, really. I hope, I hope they get on splendidly.
4: And what about David with his solo project, which seems to be doing very well uh, on stage and uh, recording-wise?
3: Well, good luck to him too, you know. There's, there's room in the world for everybody.
4: And, I mean, room for you all to work as solo artists and to have solo projects like this, to have individual ideas, which you don't necessarily want to do with people that you've worked with for a number of years.
3: Absolutely, yeah.
4: So where to from here? Now, the pros and cons of Hitchhiking is currently in production. You're doing the visual and musical side of it, a lot of pieces that have got to come together at the same time. Do you see into the future, or is this the main thing that's occupying your mind at the moment? Uh, yeah, I'm
3: not, I'm, not really, I'm not really looking beyond uh, the end of this tour. Though, I mean, I, When I, having said that, I do have some things in the pipeline that um, I may well work on in the, in the
4: future. It's quite a gamble to take a production of this size, as you mentioned earlier, the amount of money it's costing you to put the stage setting together, the musicians, etc. It's quite a gamble in the sense that uh, the Pink Floyd as a group have always been anonymous. They've never been individuals that you would readily recognise unless you were a real hardcore Pink Floyd fan. You wouldn't readily recognise them walking down the street. So, say, in this country, Roger Waters doing live concerts, you've got to get over the, the barrier of who's Roger Waters? To a lot of people.
3: That's right, yeah. Why do you think I'm doing this interview? <laughs> mm? Mm? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, a re- it's far more of a problem than I realised. I, v- I hadn't the slightest idea how much of a problem it was, uh, you know, when I, when I embarked on this. And neither had Harvey or the other promoters in Europe anyway. I think we all, you know, because all the promoters and everybody involved with me did know what I did with Pink Floyd and all the work I used to do. And there there was an assumption made that the public at large knew as well, that people who'd gone out and bought tickets for Pink Floyd shows would automatically go, oh, he's doing a show, that'll be good, I'll go and buy a ticket. It hasn't happened at all. I mean, we're not doing too badly now, thank God, Touchwood, The tickets are beginning to move. I think largely thanks to um, the... Kind of vicious attacks there have been in the press recently upon me.
4: You mean publicity, good or bad, is better for you than none at all? Well, there was a, there
3: was a, there was a terrible piece in the Evening Standard uh, at the beginning of last week, and ticket sales picked up no end after it. It described the record as uh, as um, marking a new low in recorded music. So God knows what his problem is, but he's obviously got a serious one. Um, yeah. What can I say?
4: Writing music uh, is in some ways for a lot of people a very grueling a very arduous process where it uh, takes them hours, days, months to get musical ideas together they may get chords, they may get the basic outline of a song together, uh, and and they piece it together very slowly. Other musicians, other composers, find it very easy to knock off three or four-minute songs every day of their lives. How are you? Do you find it difficult to write music, to conceive an overall idea like the pros and cons of hitchhiking?
3: No, I... Well, I don't do it every day. But... No, the, I never kind of sit down and try and think of ideas. I just as I'm going... I just, uh, ideas arrive, and I go, hmm, that's not a bad idea. And I may make a note of it somewhere, and then I'll come back to it later, and then maybe it'll develop, and I'll, I'll sit down at the piano one day and, and um, you know, work out some chords or a melody that comes together with a bit of an idea. The difficult bit, all that happens without me trying at all. I never, I don't have to try, the, the the difficult bit, then, is, is developing those short ideas into full-length things. That's where the craft comes in, and the graft, is then that does take a long time. Well, it can do. And sometimes the absolutely the hardest things are, you know, you've written two verses and a bridge to a song, and you've got to write a last verse. And sometimes to write
4: that last verse can become an absolute nightmare. With the live show, The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking, part two is the, is the new production, but part one is some of the older Pink Floyd material, older and newer material. I mean, you're going right back to the second album, Sourceful of Secrets, I think, right through to The Wall. Why did you choose to break it into those parts? I mean, why, why have you got older and newer material side by side? Because with The Wall, that was one production, and that's all you did.
3: Right, well, The Wall was a double album, and so it made a whole show. Uh, previously... Um, at previous Pink Floyd tours, uh, well, the one before that was in 1977, and we did Animals was the second half of the show and Wish You Were Here was the first half. Before that, Wish You Were Here used to be the second half and Dark Side of the Moon was the first half. Before that, dark- so we used to do the last two albums so that the two halves of the show were always, I haven't got another album. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so I got to do a it.
4: Has it been a request maybe from some of the fans that you do some of the older material anyway? Because I, for no, one, uh, no, enjoyed I'm, those albums.
3: No, I mean, I, I haven't... Got, you know, the fans didn't know I was doing a um, a show. No, I just, I just sat down and I thought to myself, well, what am I going to do? You know, I can't just do the pros and cons. And I thought, well, obviously I've got to use my songs. So I thought, well, I'll do a retrospective of my... They're only my songs, I may say. No, the songs are nothing to do with anybody else, in terms of the writing, that is. And uh, so then I, I went back and I started listening, you know, to... I made a list, first of all, of songs that I th- seemed to remember that I liked and um, made up a, a short list and listened to them all and then threw a load out and then made a cassette off the albums of about 15 and and whittled it down to eight or nine songs that I finally decided to do. The first, Well, the first half of the show is, is as I've said before, it's a, kind of, it's a retrospective look at my songs over the years. So, um, I have a list of songs that we're rehearsing, so they can't change very much because, you know, <laughs> once the band have learnt them. Uh, so we're starting with Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun and uh, finishing with The Gunner's Dream from the final cut album. And uh, you have to wait and see what the other half dozen or so are in between those two. <laughs> Money is in there, and I I, that—that's for, for sure.
4: You talked about the pros and cons of hitchhiking and how you got the ideas for that. Now, um, it, I don't know whether it's difficult for you writing music or not. Uh, living in a very different lifestyle in some ways to other people, you've you've achieved success as a musician uh, financially as well as world recognition for the music that you've written and recorded. Um, how do you fit that into your music? How do you f- find a way into writing music and getting ideas when, in a way, you're detached from ordinary life, really, the ordinary folk that live in two-up, two-down, semi-detached houses?
3: Same way anybody else does it. I mean, I, do, I don't know how to answer that question because it does, It seems to me that it's, it's a question without an answer, really. Um you know, when Borstal Boy suddenly became a huge seller for Brendan Behan, did that suddenly mean that he could no longer write? You know, your writing, I believe, comes out largely from a personality that develops when you're a child. And that um, however successful you may become, you never change, you don't change inside. You may may become um, crushed by the weight of your success. And that weight may prevent you from expressing the feelings that are still that will that you will always have inside. I don't think the way that a person feels ever really changes through their life. Do you?
4: Just the outside of one's life, perhaps the material side of one's life changes, yeah. but within oh, you itself absolutely. it
3: doesn't. My, I mean my life materially is unbelievably comfortable. Um But that doesn't mean that I don't have good and bad feelings. I still wake up, you know, with anxiety attacks in the middle of the night. Maybe, you know, maybe more than. Um, well, no, it's silly. You see, you, I'm being sucked in now to saying, well, does does being um, comfortable, or rich, um, uh, um, cocoon you from bad feelings and the answer is no it doesn't you only you, you know it's obvious that it doesn't you can look at this, some of the wealthiest people in the world have been some of the unhappiest people in the world and have led absolutely miserable lives and yet some some um, as, as long as that you've got enough to eat I suppose it depends where you're living you see whether life is good or not depends upon how comfortable you are with that life you could be a very poor peasant scratching a living from the earth and you kill a chicken once a year and that's a really big deal for you but you might feel at one with nature and you might wake up in the morning and the air might be fresh and clean and you might go about your day's work and at the end of the day you might feel tired and you might have your simple meal by the open hearth and go to bed a content man Where, where in terms of our western civilized world you've got bugger all so I don't think you know that. On the other hand, on the other hand, it do, um, in the third world particularly, and also in England now, there, there there is a certain kind of subsistence level below which it's impossible to be happy. I mean, you can't be happy if you're starving. And that's all about. But those things are all about um, the, we, the human race, not having come to grips with the problems that we created in the industrial revolution. And I don't feel responsible for those problems although I feel guilt about all kinds of things, you know, it's not, I'm rambling now. You see, you you start getting off into these strange, Mm. quasi-political, philosophical areas, and and we all ramble.
4: Well, I should change the subject in that case, and in a way, uh, as a conclusion to this chat we've had, Roger... Uh, 1984 sees the pros and cons of hitchhiking. It's a project that I know is very close to you at the moment and something you're very busily working on the live side of. Is this the the last live project that you think you'll embark on or, or are you certain that this isn't the last we've seen of you?
3: No. I think there's life in the old dog yet. I don't know what I shall do in the future, but i should I, can, I there's no way I can stop working you know if I stop working for a bit i you know i start getting i find myself drifting into the room with a piano, sitting down, starting to tinker I think mm, well,
4: what if so so be busy
3: yeah well i I'll always carry the what if with me I shall go to my grave with well, I wonder if you know. And from those, I wonder if something happens.
2: That's our conversation with Roger Waters on this edition of The Rock Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this gem from our archives. So thanks for listening. Tell your friends about this podcast. And you can find us at the website therockpodcast.com and on Facebook. You can also send me your comments and let me know your thoughts. Make a request if you want, of someone you want to hear contact me at hello at therockpodcast.com. That's it for now. So long.
1: 8 billion miles driven by Leaf owners globally since 2010. Aria not yet available for purchase. Expected availability late fall. Subject to change.
0: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.